Welcome to the DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. How are you doing today, Dave? Doing well. It's uh, fall like weather here in San Antonio this week in the 70s. How about New York? 70s, yeah. Yeah, well, we've had fall too, but it's meant like 40s, low 40s. We were freezing the other night. I mean, it was just all of a sudden, you know, you go from thinking, well, we might need to put the air conditioner on to when can we get the heater up and running? So, yeah, we had a real shock a couple of days ago as we were all shivering and grabbing sweaters and and sweatshirts and extra blankets. So fall has arrived. I think it's going to be 70 today and tomorrow, but after that, we're supposed to get some lows even down into thirties. So we're definitely seeing the seasons change here. So have you cut all that wood and you're ready to go about four or five cords, right? Your backyard. <laughs> if I had four or five cords in the backyard, that would be my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> our, our postage stamp of a backyard uh, could not hold that much wood, but yeah, no, we've, we've got a, a very old chimney, but it's it uh, needs a little bit of work before we were to use it for a fire. So we've got kind of a, a little lamp lit up thing that we put in there to create a little bit of a fire mood, but we don't dare actually start a real fire in there. A little concerned about the all the rumors about heating oil and uh, gas this year. So uh, we may be keeping those sweaters on throughout most of the winter. Yeah, I heard this like everything else and in inflation this year. Yeah, yeah. Huge problem. So yeah. Yeah, the other thing we're dealing with is a major turnaround last night on, on the Red Sox and Braves front. You know, up until the seventh inning, it looked like Red Sox and Braves were both going to get their third win. And uh, that World Series matchup you predicted today was, was about to come into fruition. But, but now it's a little more shaky. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not super confident coming to today's game. And I'm looking forward to these last three games, uh, two of them in Houston on the Red Sox side. Yeah, I guess the only bright spot is that I wanted to drive four hours to Houston this weekend to catch one of those games. Yeah. I, I could, but we were just there <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. But yeah. a lot of lot of uh, Boston fans who were down here did just that. Went went saw the Sox uh, this past weekend and and may go again. Yeah, yeah, they definitely travel well, and it's one of the things that you know I think gives the Red Sox a chance on the road. Yeah, last night was the classic thing I've been worrying about all along: the bullpen not being able to hold the lead. Two to one lead, you know, just not enough. We needed a few more grand slams if you want to make sure that your your lead is right. secure with this Red Sox pitching staff this year. Well, uh, three games left, best of three to get to the World Series. I think that um, they definitely need that that one tonight. They got to win Game Five. That's important. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't complain. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, this is just playing with house money. You never expected to be this far at the beginning of the season. So enjoying enjoying the run, and I'm I'm glad it's a five o'clock game this afternoon. So can actually, you know, watch the end of it, getting up at five in the morning to get into the office. It can be a little challenging to make it through those last few innings every night. Agreed. 
All right, let's turn to Aristotle. We're on to chapters eight through 10 of book three and more on regimes today, Dave. So last time we were talking about Aristotle's assessment of oligarchy and democracy. And I think it's important to highlight that these are the two forms of government that Aristotle believes will be most prevalent in human history. And I think that's proven to be true. It's either really the the rule of the few uh, or the rule uh, of the many. And Aristotle says that there's a there's another dimension here that we need to look at. Sometimes we we simply identify oligarchy with the few ruling and democracy with the many ruling. But the other element that we have to take into account is the question of wealth and and who has wealth or who doesn't have wealth, who's a have and who's a have not. He writes, democracy is said to be the government of the many. But what if the many are men of property and have the power in their hands? In like manner, oligarchy is said to be the government of the few. But what if the poor are fewer than the rich and have the power in their hands because they are stronger? So here he, he points out this counterfactual situation in which you'd have the many who were wealthy or the few who were poor. And it leads him to uh, the, the conclusion that whether in oligarchies or in democracies, the number of the governing body, whether the greater number as in a democracy or the smaller number as in an oligarchy, is an accident due to the fact that the rich everywhere are few and the poor numerous. So that's a really, that's kind of an important statement, right? You're talking about politics and uh, the, the human condition. And as long as you have the human condition, you're going to have a human condition in which the rich everywhere are few and the poor are numerous. And of course, what this means for his definition of, of oligarchy and democracy is that oligarchy is more driven by wealth and democracy by lack of wealth than by the actual numbers of people uh, who are ruling in these various situations. Yeah, which I think is what we see historically, right? If you think about the, the few and the many, the, the way that those are instantiated are usually the rich and the propertied. Think about that historically, uh, you know, European feudal kind of systems versus the many poor. And of course, one new feature in this that, that Aristotle contemplates elsewhere in the politics, but really we, we see emerge after the Industrial Revolution is the possibility of a regime of, of the middle class where it's not just rich and poor, but you have this, this large group in the middle. And, and of course, this is really the, the claim of, of Western democracies. We can create a, a large and flourishing middle class that kind of has one foot in both of these camps and might create kind of a balancing feature for the regime because you know middle class, they're not desperately poor. They have some stake in the current system. Uh, they're not revolutionaries for that reason. Um, but they're also not not jealous of the rich. They kind of you know are, are eager to be rich and you know want to climb that ladder a little bit. So this is one of the features that we see in, in a contemporary Western society the last say two centuries that that makes it perhaps more politically stable than the kinds of regimes that Aristotle was looking at um, in, in the Greek world that he was living in. Yes, and Aristotle notes that there's always going to be contention as to whether the few who are rich or the many who are poor should rule because both the few and the many have the freedom to make a claim uh, to authority. Uh, and this produces um, competing claims between these two groups. And we've, we've certainly seen that play out also in, in human history. 
And, and you mentioned the last two centuries and, and the question of whether or not a middle class can be created and whether or not there can be kind of a consensus there so that you don't have this antagonism between um, the, the wealthy few and the, and the many poor. And what was interesting, right, is when you had many um, Marxist intellectuals in the 20th century who were just banging their head against the wall because they couldn't produce a Marxist revolution within the United States because those individuals who would have been the proletariat were more interested in incrementally making their way up uh, the ladder and living the American dream and going to see a Yankees Red Sox game. And they, they really weren't bought into the language of revolution. So there was a, uh, you call it a democratic consensus uh, or a, um, a Western consensus that existed within the United States that, that perhaps suggested that it, it needn't be a war uh, between the few uh, and the many. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in American politics today in the 21st century is perhaps a departure from that consensus and a reimagining of politics where it, it has to be a question of the haves versus the have-nots. And that's a, that's a really, I think, a, a dangerous thing in American history if that consensus if that middle-class consensus produced a, uh, a modicum of peace uh, in that in the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, the effort to stir up envy uh, of the rich in particular has been a part of American politics for quite a while. I mean, you go back to the Jacksonian age and you can read Daniel Webster's speeches complaining about Jackson's language just on those fronts. You know, he, Jackson talks about a, a war of, of the many against the few or the, the, the many against the rich. And, and, and Webster says, whoa, wait a second, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're, we're a people that, that is one people aiming for a common good. And he's really struck and, and offended by, by the language of Jackson and stirring that up. And you think about the way that you know, the progressive movement over the course of the last century has really wanted to keep an eye on income inequality and, and make that a prominent political issue. It's interesting you look at polling data, it doesn't usually work in terms of Americans saying this is a top issue for this campaign. You know, you, you just don't get large numbers of Americans saying we've got to really do something about income inequality. And, and yet found an interesting poll that the Pew Research Center put out last last April asking people, of course, around tax day um, about their feelings about the present tax system. And, you know, no, no context. No, you know, here's the facts about who pays taxes. But just asking, how much are you bothered by the fact that some corporations don't pay their fair share? Now, obviously, that's sort of a leading question, right? You're sort of giving that, making that observation in the in the poll itself. And 59% of Americans were bothered a lot by that. 22 some, uh, 12 not much, six not at all. So over 80% of Americans are bothered either some or a lot by concerns about corporations not paying their fair share. And almost identical number when it comes to the wealthy. Right, whoever the wealthy are, however we classify that. Again, no definitions in the poll, but but eighty percent said that they were bothered either some or a lot by the fact that the wealthy don't pay their fair share. So there is this kind of envy or resentment or or maybe just misguided perception that that corporations and the wealthy don't pay their fair share, whatever that is, um, and yet this revolutionary ferment that that Marxists and and to some degree the progressive movement have tried to inculcate and, and 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 use for political advantage has never really quite emerged so you know I think we have 
two pieces of this. You know, we, we, we've got the kind of baseline stability. People have bought into a, a capitalist system, which, which includes um, hierarchies that are temporary in terms of wealth and income. Uh, but also there's an effort to destabilize that, an ongoing effort to destabilize that. And then it has some fruits and, and, and could be in our already polarized age, one more dimension of division that really wouldn't serve us well moving forward. Right. And it's interesting to compare that envy-driven debate that seems to be growing today with, I think, a more clear-sighted understanding of what can be expected in this realm. Uh, here, I think about Madison's words in Federalist 10. Of course, the key theme of Federalist 10 is faction. And that's what we're talking about here when we have this struggle between oligarchs and, and Democrats. And Madison writes uh, shortly into that paper that the diversity in the faculties of men from which the rights of property originate is not less an insuperable obstacle to a uniformity of interests. The protection of these faculties is the first object of government. From the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property, the possession of different degrees and kinds of property immediately results. And from the influence of these on the sentiments and views of the respective proprietors, ensues a division of society into different interests and parties. I mean, you can't state it any more clearly than Madison does there that we have different talents and gifts. And in the marketplace, that leads us to acquire more or less. And we're looking at that. And, and the question is, well, is there anything we can do about that? And, and would it be possible to grant to another individual that had more than you that that individual merits more than you? And, and that, that, takes a, um, that, that takes humility uh, that that takes uh, forces working within you, uh, in which um, you're trying to counter that that tendency towards envy or jealousy of what another possesses. So that's always going to be um, an issue, and I think you know we see an interesting attempt uh, in the Federalist Papers and in the American Constitution uh, to to approach this question um, in an even keeled manner that works against faction. Yeah, Madison's claim there is that it's the job of government to protect those differences, right? Protect the faculties that produce those differences. So, so it, it's not the job of government <laughs> to try to equalize incomes, which is obviously directly contrary to the arguments made um, by many progressives today. Yeah, and that goes back to a point that we made, I think, a couple of times in our first season last year in referencing the great progressive thinker Herbert Crowley. Crowley takes on this question of whether or not we we have rights to those things generated by our natural talents and gifts and circumstances. And he, and he says that, that we, we really shouldn't have them. That's just a matter of luck or good fortune. And that he, he redefines the role of government in anti-Madisonian terms. He says that really the role of government is to be the intervener. So if someone doesn't have those talents or someone hasn't been born into those circumstances, the government is going to weigh in uh, for that person uh, to try to uh, even the scales. Uh, of course, what we've seen when this happens, right, is the administrative state itself becomes more and more powerful because it's the one putting weight on this person or that person, uh, and it becomes an entity unto itself uh, that uh, no matter what happens at the end of the day, we know it's going to grow in, in its power and its hold on society. Yeah, which is a great, I think, transition to the next chapter where we talk about the imperfect justice of democratic and oligarchic regimes. Yeah, so I, I think that you know one of the things that we, we have to remember is that a, a political discourse that simply centers on the question of who has wealth, who doesn't have wealth, and competing claims uh, to that wealth 
is going to uh, be a discourse that leads us down a road uh, to eventually uh, to dissolution. And I think that there's a way that Aristotle offers in, in chapter nine of book three, there's a way that we can move forward on this. And, and that's by asking the question, well, to what degree is justice and equality a real thing? Uh, to the degree that what one merits is what one should merit. Uh, and I think that um, the example that I've always used in the classroom is, is, is the following. If I gave all students the same grade, regardless of whether or not they were deserving of that grade, so everyone, whether or not they did the work the week before, received a B in the class, there'd be a claim made by many in that class who did the hard work that this was unjust. But I, in trying to even things to make things even, would have rewarded those who shouldn't have been rewarded and punished those who should have been rewarded. So that's a, um, that's a type of democratic injustice, right, in which the people don't merit what they're getting. But there's also an oligarchic injustice in, in as well. And that would be if, if I had a group of students who I, I really came to, to like and enjoy, and if I liked them so much that the third or fourth class they took with me, I just gave them an A just because they were, they were my people. They were my peeps. And then I had some people that I didn't know who I hadn't given an opportunity uh, to earn my respect, who I just gave a lower grade to because I, I don't know who they are. That's an oligarchic injustice, right? That's just believing that the, the people who are my people ought to be deserving of more, even if they're not deserving of more. So Aristotle comes up with this really great you know, definition of, of justice and equality, equality for equals and inequality for unequals, right? That, that there, there really is a ratio that we ought to aim for. And that that ratio is virtuous in and of itself. And at, at the end of the day, we have to be thinking about the good life, about living well, um, and about virtue when we're dealing with these competing claims uh, over the wealthy wanting to rule uh, or the poor wanting to rule. You know, Aristotle does, does a great job of pointing us to the question of, well, what is the ultimate purpose of government in all of this? Because you say, well, do the rich have a claim to to rule? And the answer is, yeah. I mean, if you look at the federal income tax numbers, a couple of years ago, the top 1% made 21% of income, but paid 41% of all federal income taxes. Top 10% earned 48% of income and paid 71% of all federal income taxes. And it's normally the case that over 60% of Americans don't pay any income tax. Now, that doesn't mean no tax. You're still paying Social Security and Medicare, so not, not no tax whatsoever. But on the income tax side, it's, it's highly progressive in terms of the actual results who pays the tax. And so you might very well say, as, as, a, as a wealthy person, well, look, we're, we're paying the bill. We're paying the freight here. And so why, why shouldn't we have more say in political things? And, and that would be true in an absolute sense, if, if paying money into the treasury was the fundamental virtue of politics, uh, but it's not, right? Now, on the other hand, the poor, the many could say, well, yeah, but we supply the troops, right? The, the rich aren't fighting the wars. Uh, the essential task of a, of a government is to protect its people. And who is it that's filling up the ranks of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines? It's, it's, it's the lower middle class and, and the poor, by and large, not, not the wealthy. 
So that's an essential function, right? There's, there's this free group of individuals that's defending the freedom of all. Uh, and so surely this group likewise has, has a reasonable claim to political power. And they do up to a point, but that's not the only and essential task of, of the government. And so what Aristotle is trying to do is, is moderate these claims and say, yes, money is important. Yes, soldiers are important. Other, other factors are important, but let's ask the fundamental question, what is the chief virtue that the city aims at, that government aims at? And then let's talk about who has a claim to rule in light of that virtue. And we'll find out that neither the rich nor the poor have an absolute claim on that basis. Right. And, and you can make an attempt, I think, as the American founding fathers do early on to, to I think, codify those claims that you just mentioned of, of the many and the few. And I, I think that, moreover, you can, you can try to encourage right virtuous behavior. And I, I think Madison says it right. Where, what are we trying to teach the few who are wealthy through the law? We're trying to teach them to be liberal with regard to granting opportunities to those who don't have to likewise merit uh, a life of um, in which they can live well. So you've, you've got to teach the few who are wealthy to be great um, advocates of equal opportunity. And then you have to teach the many who are poor to be great advocates of property rights. So if, if you have a, a group of, of many who, who may not have property, but love property rights, and you have a group of few who are wealthy, uh, who have a lot of money, but may want to hold on to it, but they, they want to open up uh, that access uh, to, to wealth and living well to others, then that's probably the best that you can do. But look at where we are today on that front and look at the polls that you just mentioned. Are the, are the many the greatest proponents or advocates for private property? Uh, or does Envy drive a lot of their assessment of things? And do the few in this country, are they working towards true opportunity uh, for uh, those who have not? Uh, or do they care more of tending to their own good? So this is, you know, that can, it's kind of a good marker of where we are as a society, looking at the few and the wealthy, uh, excuse me, the few and the um, many in such terms. Yeah, you know, I was earlier in this week, we've got a digital subscription to the Wall Street Journal. And I was just, you know, kind of go through the scroll of the articles. And after every article or two articles, there was a Facebook ad. And, and the ad was one variation or another of, no, we support regulation. We support reform. We, we support government intervention when it comes to social media. And, and, and you know, they're trying to make this play that, that they're kind of responsible stewards. There's been, of course, a lot of controversy about Facebook, a lot of articles in the Wall Street Journal about the things they know about how it harms people or Instagram harms, especially, you know, teenage girls and others and, and not really doing anything about that. And so you know, they're trying to put forth this, oh, no, we're, we're good citizens. We don't mind the government getting involved. We don't mind regulation. Uh, but we know that this is the normal pattern for these large corporations that are looking to use regulation oftentimes to maintain their market position. Right? This is not right. any kind of generous offer on the part of Facebook. Oh, please regulate us. But what normally happens is this regulation creates a context for them keeping out competitors and, yeah. and maintaining their status. And, and you know now there's sort of this quasi-public-private kind of enterprise and, you know, the large corporations have, have done this kind of move uh, as long as there's been a, a regulatory state to do it. And so it's one of the ironic consequences of the development of that administrative state you were talking about earlier, that rather than limiting the reach of these powerful corporations, it often gives them opportunity 
to to capture those regulatory interests and shape them in ways that that benefit them and maintain their their monopolistic position or their their near monopolistic position when market forces might otherwise have undermined that just naturally over the course of time. Yeah, and this is a good transition to the final chapter that we'll cover, chapter 10. Yeah, at the end of the day, we really can't trust in an oligarchy of men or a democracy of men because they're going to be blinded by their own interest. So uh, their judgments, their, their contentions uh, are always going to be a little bit skewed. And it's why I think at the end of this discussion, Aristotle says that the words of John Adams, you need an empire of laws, not an empire of men. You're going to need a law that is sturdy. Uh, a law that has protections uh, for both the few and the many, for the wealthy um, and and the poor, because only through that law will you have a standard that uh, protects you uh, from our tendency to want to take whatever position we have and abuse it. Yeah, and of course, the danger there is that you know if the laws become corrupted by oligarchic interests, become factious laws, to use the language you were using earlier, or democratic interests then we have a problem. And so, you know, the, the founder's effort was to establish a constitution that made that more difficult. Now, of course, we can abandon the forms of that constitution, or we can maintain the forms and, and lose the spirit of that constitution. Uh, we can use majoritarian power in ways that abuse the intent behind that. But the overall purpose was to restrain those that would want to use the law in ways that aren't really lawful. Right, in ways that are really just like arbitrary decrees to make that more difficult to accomplish. And of course, having a bicameral legislature and a Supreme Court and executive branch, all these independent parts as well, all this is part of a, a structure meant to prevent as much as possible the misuse of the law. Um, but, but that ultimately depends on a, on a commitment of the people, as you were talking about earlier, Dave, you know, things like property rights to, to, to justice, right? And, and to see that there's more to political life than simply using power to get as much as you can and to benefit those like yourself and hope that when you lose the next election, the other side doesn't do very well likewise for themselves. Back to that essential distinction of this book, are we going to have a regime that tends toward the common good, whose laws tend toward the common good, or a regime that tends toward individual advantage? And it's it's why it's so essential in, in each of these situations to adopt an orientation that, that there is a common good. It, it's pretty hard to figure it out at some times, but that ought to be the standard that we're, we're aiming for in, in all that we do and, and in the judgments that we make. All right, let's wrap up the show with the crystal ball. And of course, we've been talking a lot about baseball for good reason as we're wrapping up the baseball season. But amazingly, as we're doing that, the, the long, long NBA season has also just begun uh, and will be with us until usually like the middle of June, I think. So uh, if you're a basketball fan, you get lots and lots of basketball. What we're going to do is make our predictions for Eastern Conference champions, Western Conference champion, overall NBA champion, and then throw in a little bonus, the classic Lakers-Celtics rivalry, predict how many wins this year in the regular season for the Lakers and how many for the Celtics. All right, Dave. So why don't you lead us off with your Eastern Conference prediction? I'm going to go with the Miami Heat. I okay. really uh, love Jimmy Butler as a player. I think he's one of those all-stars that just brings it every night. And, and certainly you can build a team around that person. 
I think it's interesting, right? That we've kind of been in these last 10 or 15 years in the big three that that's the way you win a championship. And the heat went out and got PJ Tucker. They got Kyle Lowry, really championship caliber players. And I think they already had a really good roster. So uh, I'm going to say that the East is won by the heat. I'm actually going to say that the heat will win it all. Uh, so they'll win their fourth championship and, and uh, Jimmy Butler will be rewarded for all of his hard work. Uh, and the West, I'm going to go with the Utah Jazz. I think another team that really plays well as a team uh, like the Phoenix Suns last year. I think that West is, is wide open. Uh, there's some talk about the Golden State coming back. Uh, I, I'm not really buying much into the, the Lakers buzz. I think that they're rather old. So Heat versus Jazz and the Heat take the championship. Uh, P.J. Tucker, Kyle Lowry, uh, putting them over the top. Yeah, I can see that. I think it's it's an interesting season because, you know, we had that stretch where it was it was LeBron in the finals. And then the only question was, who was he against? And, you know, didn't win all those finals for sure. Lost more than he won. But but you knew in advance he was going to be there. And then there was usually one other superstar that would lead his team to the finals. And, you know, it's been a superstar-driven league really our whole lives. I mean, you go back to... Larry against Magic, and then Michael Jordan, and then Shaq and Kobe and Tim Duncan. And, you know, we've had these brief periods where there's sometimes been kind of a team that rose where there was no single superstar, Detroit Pistons, a couple versions of the Pistons over the, over the years. But um, still, you know, usually it's one of the top two or three players that gets to the finals at least and, and usually wins the championship. So I'm going to kind of mix that model up a little bit. I, I, think, I think it's going to be the Bucks again coming out of the East. And then in the West, I'm going to say Golden State recaptures the magic. You know, Steph Curry really came back so well last year from from injury and I think shocked people that he was as effective as he was. Just seemed like he picked up where he left off, back to his MVP form. So, you know, last night they beat the Lakers. Um, Maybe a sign of things to come. So I'm going to say Golden State goes all the way and beats the Bucs in the finals. So that leads us with the Lakers and Celtics and our predictions for their regular season wins. Of course, 82 regular season games for the first time in several years this year, back to the normal schedule. So how many for the Lakers? How many for the Celtics, Dave? I don't think the Lakers are going to have a good uh, season. Uh, I I would say I put them at maybe 46 wins, 36 losses. So kind of fifth or sixth seed, you know, hoping to turn it on in the playoffs and, I think the it'll be interesting the Celtics with their their new coach you know, whether he's able to get them to play a defense. I, I think he will be, and I think that uh, defense tends to win those regular season games. So I'll, I'll put the Celtics at fifty, uh, and the Lakers at forty six. Okay, yeah, I'm a little less optimistic on both. I've got the Lakers at at forty four. My guess is LeBron sits out at least twenty games. Um, for one reason or another, maybe a little bit of injury, but also just some of those rest days that have become so common for at least the older superstar players. Uh, Anthony Davis probably gets hurt at some point along the way. That seems to be fairly typical. And we'll see how well uh, you know Westbrook integrates with the rest of the team there. It seems like there might be some growing pains there. I think they were 0-6 in the preseason. They've lost their first regular season game. So uh, still looking for a win with that group. No win games, obviously, but I think, I think you know they're going to, get in the playoffs, but they're going to be trying to turn it on in the playoffs. I guess they just can't find that gear. Uh, Celtics, I think are better than the Lakers, at least for the regular season. I'm going to say 47 wins, uh, disappointing season last year for sure. And you just kind of wonder where this team lands. You know, there's still some individual talent there. It seems like this should be a, a top team, 
but it just hasn't happened. And for some reason, this group of players just doesn't seem to be able to quite put it all together. So I want to say 47 wins, uh, you know, solid, probably that's a four or five seed and maybe a quick exit. All right. That's going to wrap it up for this week's show. We'll look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, review the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also contact us at democracy in America day at gmail.com. And we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Vision.